Okay, good morning everyone. It's great to see everybody again after our uh, extended break. Um, thank you. First of all, uh, our learning this morning is for a refuah shleimah of all holy Yisrael, all those who are ill should have a speedy and painless recovery. In particular, please have in mind Baruch Mordechai ben Esther Chaya should have a, a complete, speedy, painless recovery. Also, a reminder, if you've not yet voted, you have a civic responsibility and obligation and opportunity to vote. Every year, I remind everyone of Rav Moshe's tshuva. Rav Moshe saw voting as an act or expression of Hakar Satov. It is an expression of gratitude. And whether you like the options or you don't like the options, but to, uh, to sit it out is an act of ingratitude for the blessing that we have that our ancestors would have given anything to be able to walk into a polling station and to affect their own future and affect uh, their own destiny. So please uh, take advantage of that opportunity. Okay, Parshas Lech Lecha, page 54 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. We're going to give our overview of the Parsha, as we always do, and then get into a delve into specific psukim. Parsha begins somewhat abruptly. We mention this every year. Avram Avinu has lived a lengthy life, what for many people is a full life, before we're ever introduced to him. And we don't know about his childhood and his adolescence. The stories that the Medrash fills in are left out of the text. We only meet Avram Avinu when God first addresses him with his original test of Lech Lecha. So page 54. God gives Avram this enormous test. And the challenge is to think, how is it an enormous test? Because when you read Rashi and you see that this test, when God says, Lech Lecha, go, I want you to leave your homeland, leave the place of your birth, leave your father's house to the land I will send you. Now, it's somewhat mysterious. God does not give an exact address for Avram to put into his GPS. And for Avram, there's an element of mystery, of uncertainty, certainly of curiosity. And none of us do well with uncertainty. We like to know exactly what's happening. And that element about it is most certainly a significant test. But Rashi tells us that implicit within the test, God said to Avram, it's It's for your own good. I'm not asking you to walk away from everything you have, the comfort of your childhood, your material possessions. I'm sending you into a wandering, nomadic lifestyle where you will want and lack and need, where you will be anonymous and invisible, where you will struggle and suffer. No, God says, I'm asking you to leave everything you know. Why? For your own good. I'm going to give you fame and celebrity. You're going to revolutionize the world you're going to have an incredible impact. You're going to have progeny after you. You're going to have a legacy. You're going to have mass great wealth. So where is the test? Where is the test? I want you to leave everything, but no, it'll be even better where I'm sending you. Where is the test? And I don't want to elaborate too long on this. We've studied this in the past. But to me, this is everything about Avram Avinu's legacy. Avram Avinu's legacy is not that he was the first Jew or the first from Jew. It's debatable whether he was even Jewish. It's debatable whether our avos and imos, our matriarchs and patriarchs, had the status of being a Jew. What does it mean to be a Jew after all? You can only be a Jew after the giving of the Torah. The Parshish Drachim, the Mishnah Malach, has the opinion you can only actually be identified as a Jew after the Torah is given at Sinai. Till then, Avram is an Ivri. He's on the other side. He's the father of ethical monotheism, but he's not yet a Jew. 
And his legacy is not being a from Jew, even though the Medrash tells us that Avram observed the totality of Torah, even though it had not yet been given. So what's Avram Avinu's legacy? What's his legacy? That he remains for us this transformational leader, this impactful figure, that all these years later, all these years later, that Avram continues to have this incredible impact. Billions of people across the globe, monotheists, if you assume Islam is monotheism, which the Rambam does, Christianity is more debatable, but certainly they believe in the God of the Jews. So he had an impact on transforming the globe of billions of people. He did so, by the way, never with an army, and never with power, and never with threat, but rather with influence, with the power of words and of teaching and of lessons, which I think is a very uh, significant point. But in any case, what's the test? So the Salaam Rebbe says, it's in those first words, Lech Lecha. God's test to Avram was, Lech Lecha. I want you go to go and find you. He doesn't tell him the name of the land. He doesn't give him an address. Because the promised land ultimately is for each and every one of us to find our destiny. What the Salaam Rebbe describes as our Yehud. What we were meant to be. Who we're meant to become. What we're meant to achieve. So many of us are simply the composite result of the influences in our life, namely, Artsacha, Moladetcha, and Besavicha. We are just the result of the politics we heard around our parents' Shabbos table, the culture and environment and attitude in our community, the fad and the style and the peer pressure socially, bless you, that surrounds us. And we are just the result of all of those influences. How do we discover who we want to be, who we are, how we are uniquely positioned, what are our talents and skills and character traits, what are our faults and deficiencies and challenges, who are we and what can we contribute to the world? And that, says the Salaam Rebbe, that's the test of lech, lecha. Go find out lecha, who you are. That's the journey. Transcend your surroundings, figure out, spend time reflecting on who you are. And that, in fact, that indeed, is an enormous test. How many people have lived a good portion of their life? How many are into their 60s, 70s, 80s? And they've been living, the Salaam Rebbe writes, they can come upstairs and say, God, I observed Torah, I studied Torah, I kept mitzvot, I kept Shabbos, I kept kosher, I went to shul, I went to the daf, I volunteered for the chesed committee. Check, 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 check. I did everything right. God says, that's nice. That's the basis. That's the basics. That's what I expect from everybody. But what made you, you? What mark did you leave on the world? How did you leave the world a better place than the one that you found it? This first test of Avraham, the first test we're taught in the Torah, is, I think, his ultimate legacy. The Lech Lecha. He is our father. He's our ancestor. He's our inspiration in trying to inspire each of us on our journey, the journey to Lecha. Who are we? And that journey's not over. It's not that in your 20s and 30s and 40s you can have an impact on the universe and once you retire, you're done, you hang it up. The journey of Lecha, I'll remind you how old Avram Avinu is. How old is Avram in this conversation? He's 75 years old. How old is Avram when he has Yitzchak? He's 100 years old. That's... Yeah, that's... uh, so you're never retired from the journey of figuring out your mission 
and your mark on the universe. And that's what God is telling Avram. For your good, because there's nothing more satisfying, there's nothing more fulfilling, there's nothing more meaningful than fulfilling the very purpose for which you are created. Not to fulfill the purpose that your neighbor was created, and not to compete with someone else and their mission on earth, but to identify and to pursue and to begin to achieve each of our mission. In fact, the Son of Abba writes, he calls Avodah Zarah. Avram Avinu is living in a world of idolatry. What's Avodah Zarah? Avodah, which is Zarah to you. Avodah means a life of service, of work, of effort. So what's Avodah Zarah? Zar means strange, different, foreign. If you're pursuing someone else's life, you're trying to keep up, you're trying to compare, you're trying to compete, not with what your mission should be, but simply with someone else, that's Avodah Zarah. You're worshipping someone else's avoda. That's not your avoda. Every one of us have to identify and pursue relentlessly what is our unique mission. And I think that's Avram's legacy. Avram's legacy is he came into the world and he transformed it. He came into the world and he left it a better place than the one that he found. So the Torah tells us, God says to Avram, you're going to go to this place, I'm going to make you a great people, I'm going to bless you. Agad you'll have a great name. Those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. Every year I mention, it'd be nice if we as Jews believe that. Many of the non-Jews believe that. And, uh, but, but this is our sacred Torah. We should believe that. That those who bless us are blessed and those who curse us are cursed. Us are cursed. Avram goes and he goes with his nephew Lot. And he's 75 years old when he leaves Haran. He takes his wife and Lot. He takes all of his property. What's the nefesh asher asu b'charan? This is his legacy. Avram, what did he do? He built golems? What does it mean, nefesh? The souls that he had built in Haran. No, it means the lives he had impacted. The people that he had influenced. He takes his followers. He takes his disciples with him. And they head towards Canaan. Fine. There's a famine in the land. Avram heads down to Egypt. He goes through this charade. Egypt plays this dominant role. We've spoken about it in the past. One of the previous Parsha Shirim on this Parsha, you can find it on Yu Torah. Why Egypt keeps coming up. Our patriarchs keep going down to Egypt for famines. In our Parsha, we have God's promise to Avram that your children will suffer in Egypt. We had to endure an exile in Egypt. The contrast between Egypt and Israel, Mitzrayim and Canaan, the need to go through this period in Egypt as a precursor to, uh, to being able to achieve what we're meant to in Israel is a very, very important topic. We've talked about it another time. So Avram goes through the charade. Sarah, pretend you're my sister. They'll kill me if they know you're my wife because you're so beautiful. What does it mean Avram never noticed her beauty? You're not allowed to marry a woman if you don't look at her. A couple has to court one another. Gemara Kedushan says that a man is forbidden from marrying a woman he hasn't seen because maybe there won't be a level of attraction, and therefore there won't be the level of love and affection that a marriage deserves. So what does it mean when Avram says, oh, you know, I never noticed that. Wow, you're beautiful. I never realized. What does that mean? The commentators discuss. Avram goes down. Ultimately, the charade is revealed, because power and his servants suffer a plague from God. They challenge Avram. Why didn't you tell us who she was? And they push Avram away. They send Avram away. Avram comes out of Egypt with his nephew Lot. The Avram Kaved Ma'od. At this point already, Avram Kaved has a dual meaning. Kaved means, heavy means, he had a lot of property, a lot of material possessions. He had a lot of wealth. 
Kaved, the Pasuk says he's Kaved Bamekneh Bakesiv Azov, but Kaved is also the root of the word Kavod. Kavod, to have honor, means that people think they treat you as if you're heavy, not weight-wise. They treat you as if you're weighty. You're, you deserve honor because you're of influence, you're weighty. And Avram travels. Torah goes out of its way to tell us that Avram took the same route back and stayed in the same hotel on the way back that he had stayed in on the way down when he was poor. When he had nothing, he stayed in a certain place. And even after he had so much, he never stopped becoming who he was. He maintained his humility. He stayed in the same inn, stayed in the same place on the way back that he had on the way down. Now that he has all this wealth, we know that wealth is a double-edged sword. Wealth is a blessing, but wealth also comes with a test. And this is another one of the tests that his nephew Lot is not as equipped to handle the wealth. And what's happening? Lot, who too gained great notoriety and wealth, is allowing his flock to graze on the property of others, on other people's property. And this, of course, is disturbing Avram greatly. Avram is a great ethicist. Avram is a great man of moral principle. Here his nephew, who Avram was the catalyst for his nephew's wealth, and his nephew is using that wealth, not in honesty, but to graze on the neighbor's property, which is stealing. Now what was Lot's mentality? Was Lot such a thief he was willing to steal? So Rashi tells us, no, Lot had a good argument. He had a Yiddish cup. What was Lot's argument? He says, you know, my uncle Avram was promised by God this whole land is going to be his. And my uncle Avram has no inheritors, has no children. So who is destined to inherit Uncle Avram? Me, Lot. So if Avram is going to own all this land and he's going to leave it to me, I'm not doing anything wrong by letting my animals graze on it even now. Of course, this was a mistaken approach and Avram can't take it any longer. There's a dispute between the two. Why does it bother Avram so much, by the way? Rashi also tells us that Lot has a physical appearance of his uncle Avram. They have a resemblance, they look alike. So when the neighbors see Lot allowing his flock to graze, they will mistakenly assume it's Avram. Now Avram's entire life mission, as we just talked about, he achieved l'cha. He figured out, he identified that his whole life mission is to model for the world what an ethical life looks like. Well, how can he achieve that? It is severely undermined if his nephew is stealing from the neighbors and his nephew looks like him. And people are going to think it's him. So Avram gives the nephew an ultimatum and says, this is not going to work. We've got to split up. And which way do you want to go? You take whichever portion of the company you want. You want to go left, I'll go right. You want to go right, I'll go left. Which way were they facing when Avram gave him that? Was he giving Lot the option of east-west? Was he giving Avram the, lo- the, no- uh, Lot the notion or the choice between north-south? So the Sforno deals with it. And when it says he goes Mikedem, it sounds like he was giving him an east-west. But keep reading the Psukim. Lot raises his eyes and he sees the whole Jordan area. Which way was he looking? South. This was before God had destroyed Stom and Amorah. And what does it look like? Lot looks southwest and he's reminded, he sees the flourishing property, the greenery, the agricultural blossoming. 
And he says, wow, if I have a choice of where to go, I want to go there. Why? Lot is drawn where? What does it look like? Ke'eretz? Mitzrayim. I said a moment ago the role of Mitzrayim, and I encourage you, if you have time, to listen to of the past. We developed this a lot more. But of Menachem Liebtag, who will be one of our scholars in residence this year, talks about this notion. Mitzrayim, Israel, Mitzrayim, Canaan, Egypt to Israel, are two contrasting, not only geographic locations, but philosophies and ways of life. Egypt is nourished how? By the Nile. <clears throat> the Nile is a given, is a constant. The Nile provides without one having to pray, without one having to rely or lean with a sense of faith. You see the Nile, and that's what it means that Paro worshipped the Nile. One worships the source of their sustenance. And they saw the Nile as being this constant, consistent source of their income, of their revenue. They were able to work their fields because it was nourished by the Nile. Egypt is a place that is not nourished naturally. Israel relies on rain. Now it happens to be that today, and next Shabbos when we do our APAC weekend, Shabbos morning where I think we've all had more than enough politics, so our APAC weekend this year focuses not on politics, but on Israel's technological progress, contribution to the world, the remarkable, extraordinary things being done in Israel. And we have a number of guests who will be kind of highlighting. It's almost a mini, mini policy conference showing that off on Shabbos morning. And one of those is an expert who will be talking about Israel's breakthrough in the area of water salination, and what, their ability to um, recycle water and to um, sustain themselves off water despite the levels of the Kinneret and so on. But Israel still relies heavily on rain. Why would God design the homeland of His children to rely on rain? Because if you rely on rain, upon whom do you rely? You rely on God. You got to daven, you have to turn to Him, you have to have faith, you have to be worthy, you have to earn. So the contract, Rabbi Liebtag writes, between Egypt and Israel is the philosophy of we're good, we're independent, we're on our own, we got it taken care of, we don't need you, God, versus to live in a land where we want to feel our sense of dependence and reliance on God because that's the nature of a relationship. You know, I, I have a, my oldest is in Israel for the year, and this doesn't apply to her, Baruch Hashem. We, we, it's, we might speak more often now, well, she's 6,000 miles away than when she lived a few rooms next to me in my own home. But there are people who send their children away, and you give them the credit card or you give them a debit card. So you can give them a debit card with no limit. And how often will you hear from them? Or you can give them a debit card that needs to be replenished. And how often will you hear from them? Israel is the debit card that needs to be replenished. Egypt is the limitless credit card. And you might think, well, who wouldn't want the limitless credit card? That's much more preferable over the one with the limit. But the answer is, if you crave a relationship, if you have a limitless credit card, there won't be a relationship. There will be a harder relationship. That sense of dependence yields a closer relationship. So Lot is drawn where? He's attracted specifically to Mitzrayim. And Sodom, which is an extension of the philosophy of Mitzrayim, and that's where he chooses to go, that's the land that he wants. Avram is told here, V'samti kafar aretz, I'm going to place your offspring like the sand of, like the dust of the earth, that you can't count it. Asher im yuchal ishlam noses afar ha'aretz. Your children also, <clears throat> you won't be able to count them. Has this promise come true? It's a kind of a strange promise. 
Because elsewhere the Navi tells us that we will forever remain small in number. And history has provided that reality, that we have never ever grown to the numbers that logically we should. We've always remained small. So what happened to this promise? And God says to Avram, get up and walk the width and length of Israel. This is a physical Kenyan. The Gemara learns from here that when Avram walked to Kenyan Chazaka, Avram walks the width and breadth of Israel, he's taking physical possession of the land. He builds an altar there. And then we encounter the battle, the war of the four kings and the five kings. Lot, who had chosen to live in Sodom, suffers the fate. He's, he's captured. That lures Avram into the battle, into the war. He chooses sides. It's in Avram's merit that one side wins. Sodom is defeated. I'm sorry, Sodom was defeated. Lot was taken captive. Avram saves Lot. And they try, try to give Avram honor, and he rejects the honor, he refuses to take it. We have a bizarre interaction there, in the middle, and this we studied last year, you could listen to this online as well, because it remains as relevant now as it did, uh, as it did then. Uh, and that is Malkit Tzedek, this uh, kind of anonymous figure, introduces himself onto the scene. Avram's having this dialogue with the king of Stone, and it's interrupted, I'm on page 64, Malkit Tzedek comes and offers bread and wine. He's a Kohen. He gives a bracha to Avram. He gives a bracha to Avram. Who is this Malkit Tzedek? What is this interaction? So Malkit Tzedek, the Pasuk tells us, is Melach Shalem. Where is Shalem? It is Yerushalayim. He is the, place of a place, he's the king of a place called Tzedek. Just like Para was not the name of the king of Egypt. It's the generic name for the king. Malki Tzedek is the governor of Jerusalem. It wasn't his actual name. What was his name? This is Shem, the son of Noah, is actually the mayor or the governor, the king of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the city of righteousness. It's known as the city of righteousness even then. It's contrasted here in the section to Sodom. Sodom is the city of corruption, and the antidote to Sodom is Jerusalem, which is the city of righteousness. And the king of the city of Jerusalem is Malkit Tzedek. He's the king of righteousness. Shalem, Yerushalem. It's the place of, of awe, of fear, of shalem, of completion, and of wholeness. I don't want to uh, go back into it again. You can listen online. We spent an hour last year just on these psukim and showing how Yerushalayim is part of the very beginning of our Jewish people. Our connection to that city is not modern, it's not recent, and uh, it's something which is not only ancient, it goes back to the very beginning of our people, to Parshish Lech Lecha and to Avram. So I'll take a moment to remind you that this Sunday, our Social Action Committee has a program with honest reporting, but beforehand, we'll be having a rally to protest the UNESCO resolution that, I would say, suggests, but concludes, Israel has no connection to the Temple Mount. They need to, UNESCO needs to read our Parsha and the Mepharshim on it, to see the relationship of Yerushalayim, of Haram Moriah, and so on and so forth, to the, uh, to the Jewish people. Okay. At the end of this section, I referenced this at the end of last year, but I want to look at it a little bit more. You should have those handouts. Do I have those handouts? Here's handouts. What happens at the end of this interaction? Page 64, if you have the Chumash in front of you. What happens? Malkit Tzedek comes out with bread and wine. He's a Kohen, Lekel Yon. Vayevarcheyu vayomar. He blessed him and he said, Boruch Avram lekel elyon koneh shamayim 
Blessed is Avram of God, the Most High, maker of heaven and earth. And blessed is God, the Most High, who delivered your enemy into your hand. Now, what's the order that Malkitzedek offers this blessing? First, he blesses Avram. And only afterwards, I don't have any more copies here, maybe somebody has. First, he blesses Avram, and only afterwards, he blesses God. The Gemara picks up on this, if you have the sources in front of you. The Gemara in the Durham, and the Gemara says, Shem, the son of Noach, the Torah identifies him here as Kohen Lekel Yom. He's the first priest, the first religious personality. And he really should have been the progenitor. He should have retained the priesthood among his progeny, among his children. But says the Gemara Nadarim Lamed Beis, God withdrew this assignment, the priesthood, from shame. Why? Shenemar, since Malkit Tzedek first gave a toast to Lachayim, to Avram, and only then to God, God was offended. You're supposed to represent me. You're my priest. You're my man. You're my coin. If you don't give priority to me, I'm going to withdraw that that, uh, that status and give it to someone else. So the Prima Godim says, you know what you see from here? Prima Godim in Orachayim, Kuf Ayin Dalad, source 2, says the Prima Godim lived in Lemberg in the 18th century. When you're having a Lachayim, nice glass of wine, a nice single malt scotch, a good cup of vodka, whatever your taste is, what do you do? So many people will give a lachayim to good health and happiness, to parnasa, to nachas, to the stock market continuing to go up. Whatever your lachayim is, they make the lachayim, and then you make the bracha, shahako, boripriagafen, depending on what you're drinking. Says the prima godim, it's a mistake. It's wrong. You're going to follow in the same failed footsteps of Malkit Tzedek. First, you have to bless God, shahako, boripriagafen, then you take a sip, then you turn to your friend, your guest, and you say, And then the Prima Godin quotes a second opinion. No, first you make the Lachayim, and then you, and then you acknowledge Hashem. Why? Because Kavod Abrios comes first. After all, what are we going to see in a few weeks? What are we going to see next week? Avram gives himself a bris. And what happens at the beginning of next week? Hashem comes and he's visiting and talking to Avram. And then Avram perceives these three guests are coming his way. And what does Avram do, bizarrely? He interrupts his conversation, the audience with the Almighty, to entertain these human guests. Why? From here we learn, More significant, greater is it to play hosts to guests who need you than it is to have an audience with the Almighty which we've explained previously, really means God would rather you imitate Him than talk to Him. Given the choice, if there's a conflict where you could be imitating God, be like God, or be talking to God, God would prefer that you imitate Him and that you practice His values. But what do you see nonetheless? Kavod Abrios. Avram's respect and honor to those guests supersedes continuing the conversation bestowing honor
to Hashem. So says the Prima Godim, maybe the opposite's true. First you make the Lachayim, you acknowledge and honor the guests, and Hashem will defer. Afterwards you make the Bracha, and you recognize Him. Afterwards you recognize Him. The Sha'ari Kinesis Agedola, source 3, of Chaim ben Venisti, in the 17th century in Turkey. I just realized, for those listening, I'm drinking water. I'm not, I'm not trying to model what we're learning with a Lachaim. It's just a cup of plain old water. So the Sha'ari Kinesis Agedola says the following. He quotes uh, Rav Astrok ben Shangu, he would make the bracha and then drink, and then he would omer l'mesubim b'simchaschem v'gomer lishtos. I guess in Turkey, with Sephardi, you don't say l'chaim, you say b'simchaschem, with your joy. V'sha'alti lo atam, I asked him the reason. V'omer she'ein min anos l'haktim kavad basa v'dam l'kavad shamayim. And he said, because you can't first honor man over God. Even within halacha, if there's a conflict between kavod abrios, honoring the dignity of man and a negative prohibition, the dignity of man supersedes, it wins out. The marashal says, somebody sneezes. Shomum lo l'chaim tovim. See, we don't have so much uh, etiquette. We only use, we say, Gesundheit. The Hebrew, what's the Hebrew response when someone sneezes? Labriut. What does Labriut mean? To your health. Gemara says a sneeze can be lethal. A sneeze, you expel uh, an element of your neshama. A sneeze, you know, it's a... Gesundheit means you should have gesund. Say gesund, gesundheit, labriut. It's all different ways of saying to your good health. You know, it's one of the only, it's one of the only human body automated motions that if it starts, you can't stop. It's very dangerous when you're driving. If you sneeze when you're driving, you can't, it's absolutely nothing you can do. And it's the only time you don't breathe, right? So there's danger in sneezing. It's not, uh, I don't know that it's a tremendous cause of death, but there's danger in sneezing. So we say labriut. But there was also a practice of saying, God, I long, I hope, I wait for your salvation. So what do you first say? When you hear someone sneeze, do you say labriut? Or So he quotes from the Marshal, a tradition, that first you say labriut, first you show the dignity of the person, and then you say, then you offer the prayer to Hashem. So again, we've seen these two sources. It's unclear which is the proper, which is the proper uh, order. Do you first say, and then the bracha? Do you first make the bracha, and then the lachayim? The Shevet Alevi, Rav Osner, it's verse 4. Also, I see we had double of each page here. But uh, also talks about this, uh, this issue. I don't want to take all of our time. I want to get back to the parsha. But if you look at the Kaf Chaim, source 5. Page, uh, these pages got a little mixed up. I apologize. The Kaf Chaim, source 5. He quotes the Knesset Agedola that we just read about which order to go. He quotes the Marshal about sneezing. But he says... 
right in the middle of the paragraph. Why do you say it there? It's different. Because when you also need the same thing as your friend, you daven on behalf of your friend and you're answered. Right? The methodology to achieve your goals in prayer is not to pray for yourself, to find somebody who has the same need and to daven for them. And that's what's going on over here. And, and so on. Okay, he also weighs in. So you see this machlokis, which is the proper order? Do you make the bracha and then the l'chaim? Do you make the l'chaim and then the bracha? But did it ever occur to you, what's the origin of saying l'chaim? It's kind of bizarre. What do you mean l'chaim? What about drinking can add life? If anything, drinking too much alcohol compromises life. What's the whole origin of a l'chaim? Of course, within moderation and within responsible, responsible behavior and so on. What's the whole origin? So the Mishnah in Sota, source 6, tells us that we know, skipping ahead to Sefer Bamidbar already, Parshas Naso, but we know if a woman is accused of infidelity and she in fact secluded herself and witnesses testify that she had secluded herself with a man other than her husband, She's brought to the Beis HaMikdash and she's given this mixture, these ingredients, the Mayim Ma'orim, to drink and those waters will be a test to reveal whether she's in fact innocent or guilty. And the Mishnah tells us that whatever the consequences of drinking this water are for her, the man who's equally accused of infidelity with her will suffer the same consequence. So even though the man who secluded himself with her, not her husband, doesn't have to come to the Beis HaMikdash and drink this whole mixture, but whatever the consequence for her, he will suffer it as well. So it's based on this, source 7, based on this, that the Rav Shalom Rokeach, the Sar Shalom of Bells, the Bells of Rebbe, has a tradition. This is the origin of drinking L'chaim. Shabir Maim Rezeb Masech Sota, Keshem Shamayim Bod Gimosa, you see that one person can drink here and it has an impact on someone else, somewhere else. You see that from the story of the Sota. She's in the base of Mikdash drinking this water and if in fact she's guilty and she dies a horrible death, the man who also was her accomplice, even though he's nowhere near, he will die as well. So that's how the whole L'chaim works, says the Belzer Rebbe. You're drinking, you're drinking a L'chaim, and you're davening for a Shleim of somebody thousands of miles, hundreds of miles away. How does that work? You see from the story of Sota, one person can drink, and it can have an impact on another, and that's the origin of the source of L'chaim. I saw a second suggestion, source 8, Rav Shlomo ben Yemen Ashlag, who was the son of the Balasulam, a great Kabbalist, who says that saying L'chaim is a tikkun for the chait Adam Arishon. Coming back to our Sefer, Bracious. How? I'm on the bottom of page 4, source 8. Shrei Omehob Mesech HaShabbos. Dalach Sani L'chavrecha Saved, Zui Kol Kula. Hillel taught, what you don't like, don't do to someone else. <clears throat> this is the essence of the whole Torah. Vidach Pirushu. And everything else is commentary. V'kosha, 
I understand when it comes to interpersonal relationships. I understand what it means. What you wouldn't want done to you, don't do to other people. Don't be dishonest. Don't be impatient. Don't be judgmental. Don't be obnoxious. Don't, don't act to others as you wouldn't want. But Kate said, But how do you apply if, if Hillel's right? That the entire Torah can be reduced to that principle. Don't do unto others what you wouldn't want done unto yourself. How do you apply that to the relationship between you and God? I understand how to apply that whole principle to the relationship man and man. But if that's the essence of all of Torah, and Torah can be reduced just to that statement, how do you apply that principle to the relationship between man and God? So listen to what he says. Also, kusha bediyu kasha al-divri asifra kedoshim, he says, what is considered offensive, what's obnoxious to God, when you're in it just for yourself, when all you care about is yourself. So Adam Arishon had this urge, he had this appetite. The snake seduced Chava, Chava seduced Adam. Whatever the case may be, ultimately Adam and Chava had this personal craving, this appetite for the Eitz Adas, and they put their own appetite, their own hunger, their own curiosity over God. So when we benefit from God's world, and we enjoy it just for ourselves, selfishly satisfying our appetite or craving without a consideration for anyone else, we're following in that mistaken manner. But when we say l'chaim, when you take that personal thing that you're enjoying and you elevate it to be the benefit of someone else, that I'm going to enjoy this l'chaim, but it should be le'ilu nishmas, it should be le'refu shleima, it should be for peace in Israel, it should be for others. I've now elevated a physical thing that previously I might have been enjoying selfishly only for myself, and I've transformed it to be a vehicle to care about others. And in that way, a l'chaim transforms it from something purely physical to something which is spiritual. Okay, I want to get back to the parsha, but all of this comes from the interaction of Malki Tzedek and Avram. Malki Tzedek first says, Baruch Avram lekel yon, and only afterwards, Baruch kel yon, to which the Gemara Nadarim said, he lost the kahuna. Shame lost the kahuna. He should have first toasted God and only after toasted man. And that is the origin of this discussion. How, does, how do we properly make a l'chaim today? Yes, Moshe Leib. Nice. Okay, beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, it says in last week's parsha, Vayachel Noach. Noach came off the teva, and Vayachel. Trashi says he turned himself into chulin. Chulin means mundane. He'd been living a holy life with a purpose, a mission. And what was the first thing he thought about when he came off the ark? Now it wasn't, I understand, you know, you come off of that ark, you come off of three floors of animals, garbage, feeding them. I understand you need a little something to drink. But it wasn't that there was an available bottle and he took a little drink. What did he do? Planted a vineyard. When you plant a vineyard, it means that your first priority, what you're putting your effort into, because you have to nurture that vineyard, you have to work that vineyard for the vineyard to produce. All you want and all you anticipate and all you can wait for is to be able to drink some of that wine. 
And the commentators asked, well, what was so wrong with that? He had gone through a pretty traumatic event. And the answer is, when you walk out of an ark and you see churban all around you, when you see devastation and destruction, your first response can't be to wallow in your sorrow and to get drunk. It has to be to rebuild the world. The Holocaust survivors did not take time after surviving to wallow or to indulge in getting drunk to numb themselves to the reality of what they experienced. Thank God many of our parents' grandparents immediately went to the business of rebuilding their destroyed world. Noah was vayachel. Noah went from an ish tzaddik to he lowered himself, vayachel Noah, because he had, he had um, tried to numb himself to the reality around him rather than see himself as having an obligation to rebuild the world. So maybe then the Rebbe says that's why we say l'chaim to offset that original use of alcohol should never be to numb us from reality. It should be to elevate or enrich somehow to share that reality with others. Right, that's true, okay, right. A little detail, yeah. But maybe his first priority in terms of what his big effort is, is planting this vineyard. Okay, we haven't finished the overview of the Parsha yet. Still doing the overview. After all these things, and this is what we're going to come back to and study, Avram is worried. Hashem comes to Avram and says not to worry. And now he tells him again, I want you to go outside. And this time, notice a difference. Earlier it said, I want you to count. What was the verb? Can you count to be moneh? And now, what's the verb? I'm on page 66. Go outside, look up at the heavens, and count, but not the verb moneh, why the change? Can you count them or not? And we have this conversation now. God, uh, Avram seems to doubt God. How do I know? I'm going to have offspring and they will inherit. And God says, well, funny you should ask. Let me tell you, it's not going to be simple. You're going to go down to Egypt. You're going to suffer there 400 years. I'm going to hold your oppressors accountable as well. Avram emerges from this prophecy. And we have this bizarre interaction with animals. We're going to study all of this momentarily. Sarai, Avram's wife now, has no children. Sarah proposes that Avram have children through Hagar. Avram takes her up on it and um, Sarah then is resentful and expels Hagar. Hagar comes back. They have Yishmael together. Yishmael is described as Pere Adam. Bottom of page 70. Ben. The angel tells Hagar, you're going to conceive and have a son. The Karasha Shemo Yishmael, you'll call his name Yishmael. We understand Yishmael and Yisrael become arch rivals, not only in their lives, but throughout history. The offspring of Yisrael and the offspring of Yishmael both have God's name in theirs, which powers, gives them great power. Kishema Hashem Pera Adam. Unbelievably prophetic pasuk. Hu para adam. This Yishmael is going to be a wild man. Yado bakol, his hand will be against everybody. Viad kolbo, and everyone will have to be against him and suffer from him. 
And he will spread out and dwell across the continents, will try to populate all the lands. Unbelievable Pasuk. Notice, I just saw this this morning for the first time. Pere Adam is a very funny formulation. Why doesn't it say Adam Pere? If you want to describe somebody who's great, you say they're an Adam Gadol, they're an Adam Chacham, they're an Adam Ashir. It should say Adam Pere. Why does it say Pere Adam? The opposite. So I saw Rav Greenberg, the Rosh Hashiv of Karen say, normally the essence of a person is they're an Adam. It also happens to be that they use their essence to be a Gadol, to be a Chacham, to be an Anav, to be an Ashir, whatever the adjective is on the noun, but the noun is they're an Adam. Here, Yishmael, being Pere, is so fundamental to who they are. It's their essence that it's Pere Adam. The noun is being Pere. Pere is not the adjective describing them, it's actually the noun, being wild, being aggressive, an aggressor, an agitator. Being a pere is not an adjective describing an adam, it's the noun. It's pere, adam, not adam, pere. We have here uh, the bris itself. At 99, Avram is told to circumcise himself and his son Yishmael, and that when Yitzchak will be born, he will have to circumcise him as well. And the end of the parsha, Avram's name after the bris is changed from Avram to Avraham, Sarai to Sarah, and uh, the promise they're going to have children, which brings us into next week's parsha. Okay, let's go back and study specific pesukim. Perak Tesvav, Art Scroll, Stone Chumash, page sixty-four, bottom of page sixty-four. Everyone have it? Okay. And it was after these things that the word of Hashem appeared to Avram in a vision, saying, Don't be afraid, don't worry. Which the origin, when do, we, when do we reference this every day? Don't worry, Avram. I'm going to be your Magain. What's the beauty of a Magain? What's the beauty of a shield? It protects you from even before the harm. It's not that the harm comes, but it won't harm you. It protects you even before it comes. I'm a shield protecting you. He says, I'll be your iron dome. Have no fear, I will protect you. Your reward is in fact vast. Your reward is great. What do you mean I shouldn't worry? What do you mean you'll protect me? But God, lo and behold, I am childless. I'm barren. And the son of Mesek is my household. Namely, Eliezer. Why is he called Damesek? Rashi says he's from Damascus. That's why. What do you mean I shouldn't worry and you'll be my shield? I have no inheritor. I have no legacy. All I have right now is Eliezer. And, you know, don't get me wrong. Eliezer's loyal, he's wonderful, but he's not my offspring. You haven't given me offspring. The Rav sees, means God interrupts him 
and says, Lo Have no fear. This one, Eliezer, is not the one who will inherit you. The one who emerges from your loins, your actual biological child, he will inherit you. And it's right now that he tells him, Go look up. Go, count them. Can you count them? This, ko, ko Very powerful. So what's going on over here? Avram doubts God. God reassures Avram. Tells him to go outside. We've already done this once. Why was Avram doubting God? God's already told him, I'm giving you this land and your children after you will have it. What is going on over here? So look at Rashi. Pasuk Aleph. Says Rashi. Says Rashi. Avram's fear was not that God wasn't going to deliver on his promise. What was Avram's fear? That he would not be worthy. What is this coming on the heels of? This is after the battle, the fight of the four kings and the five kings. And Avram's worried. He's used up all of his merits. And he says, I've used up all of my merits to save Lot and to persevere and triumph. So God, maybe I'm done. I've made withdrawals. The bank account is empty. Bank account is empty. Don't worry. I will shield you from punishment. Avram was worried, maybe in this fight, in this battle, in this war, I took the life of someone who I shouldn't have. Maybe that has earned me demerits. Maybe I'm liable. To which God says, I am your magain, I will shield you from the consequence of anything you might have done wrong. So according to Rashi, what was Avram's fear? Maybe in battle, I did something wrong. The Rashpam, Rashi's grandson, says differently. He says, Avram's worried. He was just victorious. Often when you defeat an enemy, you haven't defeated them in perpetuity, you've defeated them temporarily. So Avram worries, what if this enemy reemerges? wants to seek revenge. And that's what God was reassuring Avram, have no fear, the enemy will not reemerge against you. And the Sforno says, similarly, don't fear that they're going to take revenge against you. Okay. The Ramban also weighs in here, what was Avram's fear? Writes the Ramban, Avram was fearful of two things. Avram had two fears. He combines all the answers we've seen till now. Either the nations of the world would rise against him or he would remain without children. And God was responding to both when he said, Have no fear, I will be your shield and I will protect you. Have no fear. Rashi writes, Ben, ben Mesek Beisi, Kitargumo Shekobesi Nizun Alpiv. 
Eliezer was Avram's right-hand man. He was in charge of all of his affairs. He was the trustee of Avram's estate. Avram, remember, had amassed great wealth and notoriety and was busy. So Ben Mesek Beisi, according to the Targum, says Rashi means the trustee. Eliezer, I trust him with everything. So, but you know why I have to rely on Eliezer? Do you know why he's my right-hand man? Because I don't have a son. I would love to have a son take over the business. I'd love to have a son work closely with me. The reason I have Eliezer is because I don't have the son that I long for. So Avram says to God, Says the Ramban, you know, thanks God, I appreciate it, you saved me from the kings, I won the war, but what's it all for, if I don't have children? You've promised me great reward, but what's the point of great reward without children upon whom to pass it on, to share it with? Why didn't Avram think, as the Ramban, that the great reward God had promised him maybe wasn't a fleet of cars and private planes and yachts and homes. Maybe it was Olam Haba. When Avram is turning to God and saying, Shkoyach, thanks for winning the war. Nice, you've made me wealthy. What's the point of all this wealth if I don't have people and children to share it with? Ask the Ramban, why doesn't Avram assume that the promise of wealth was for the world to come? Says the Ramban, the answer is, every righteous person knows, believes, has full faith that their righteousness will be reciprocated in the world to come. That there's no question. But there are righteous people who suffer in this world. And that's what Avram is saying. My righteousness in this world, what do I need to have the promise of schar, of great material wealth, if I don't have a family to share it with? Skip to the next paragraph in the Ramban. He continues, Says the Ramban, Every thoughtful thinking person should now be bothered by a question. Avram's already been told, how can Avram have the chutzpah to say to God, God, why do you leave me childless? When God has already promised him, look up at the sky. Sorry, when God has already promised him, look down at the earth. You see the dust? You see the specks of sand? That's how many your offspring will be. Implicit within that blessing is the promise you're going to have children. So how can Avram be so brazen and chutzpah now to say, Hey God, where are my children? And when God answers them, you can have children. Why is God's promise now better than the one that came before him? Uachuva says the Ramban, the answer is, Avram never doubted God. Yeah, God made that promise earlier. But Avram now went through a war. And Avram, after the war, says, Yeah, God, maybe the promise you gave me earlier was when I still had a bank account filled with merit. But now that I've depleted the account, now that I've used up my merits, how do I know now still the promise applies? How do I still know? And that's what God is answering now. Go outside, 
Look up at the heavens. The promise still applies. The promise still applies. Why the two comparisons? The stars in the sky, the sands on earth. And what's going on? Go outside. Can you count them? The same way you go outside, you can't count them. The uh, Lubliner of Meir Shapiro, the founder of the Dafyomi, has a beautiful interpretation here. I've shared it with you before. He says, God was telling Avram, I want you to go outside and start to do something impossible. And Avram, in fact, does it. And he says, Ko Ko, this quality, going and starting something which seems impossible, that tenacity, that resolve, that perseverance, that ability to try against all odds, Ko, that's the quality, Yezarecha. That's what's going to be in your children. So yeah, go outside. There's no way you could see all the stars. But I want you to start counting anyway as if because you're taking on something that seems impossible and trying nonetheless, you're going to put that in the DNA of all your children who are going to come after you. You know, the stars from our perspective look tiny. Stars look like tiny specks in the sky. But the truth is, if you looked at each in isolation, it's filled with, it's great. There's a greatness, a vastness. And that's the promise to Avram. The Jewish people look small in number. From a distance, study history, and we are but a speck. Yet, examine us closely and you'll see that we are great and we are vast. Far contributing to the world, far more than our numbers. As I said, that's the theme of our APAC weekend next weekend. Is the contribution, Nobel Prizes and technology and progress, invention... Our contribution to the world is far greater than our number, and that's the metaphor, the imagery of a star. Why both the star and the speck of sand? Why both? So on the one hand, the promise to be like a speck, so one is up and one is down, so it's our aspiration, our ambition towards heaven, but being rooted and grounded here on earth. But how do they complement one another? Why do I need both metaphors? We'll end with this, even though we barely scratched the surface of what we wanted to do. But we'll end with this. Why both metaphors? Because the sand on the beach, or the dust of the earth, on the one hand, it is of enormous numbers. Right? But if I hold one speck of sand, does it mean anything? It's nothing. I have to hold, take a whole handful, a shovelful, or pail of sand. I have to form an entire beach for the sand to actually function. For the sand to play a role, it can only happen when there's a sense of unity. Each individual grain is negligible. Stars, on the other hand, a shining star is the notion of the individual shining. And the combination, the complementing of these two metaphors is the ultimate bracha to the Jewish people. What Hashem wants of us, and we come full circle to the way we began with the lech lecha. Says the Son of Rebbe, the first test of Lech Lecha is Lech Lecha. Go find who you are. What's your unique mission and contribution? What's your mark you're destined to make on this world? So that's the connection of the star and the sand. The sand, on the one hand, is of so many numbers, but it only works in combination. Alone, it's insignificant. The star is a shining star unto itself. On the one hand, the bracha is that we should be shining stars, each contributing, illuminating, being a shining star, the way we even use that terminology in our vernacular. On the other hand, 
The danger of being a shining star is ego, arrogance. The whole world revolves around you. So we should also see ourselves as the sand of the beach that only work together in combination. It's the seeing our unique mission, but also the unity of part of a greater purpose. There's a lot more to talk about, but we're going to stop here. Encourage everyone to stay by Moscow. It's a phenomenal class. Beginning, say, from Malachim, takes place momentarily. Have a great day.